the Digital Society podcast brings together leading journalists, politicos, key policy influencers to explore the impact technological change is having in the UK and across the world. And it's hosted by Atos Senior Vice President of Strategy and Communications, Kulveer Ranger. Hello, my name is Kulveer Ranger and I'm Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communication at Atos. And I'm delighted for you to join us on our Digital Society podcast, where today I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, Polly McKenzie, who is the chief executive of the think tank Demos. Now, Polly has had a long and very engaging, I'd say successful career in politics and in the world of think tanks as well, and is also a very successful media commentator. But she was also part of the uh, Liberal Democrat uh, uh, Party and was uh, uh, involved in supporting uh, Ed Davey uh, when he was uh, part of the coalition. Uh, she was very much part at the heart of the coalition government with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservative Party and in fact involved in writing the coalition manifesto. So she's been right at the heart of government, at the heart of policy making and now wields huge influence as a leader of a think tank. So Polly, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, thanks. I would like to start off. Yeah, thanks. I'd like to start. Look, this is going to be a very, that was a very formal introduction, I have to say. I felt that was formal. But look, we're going to have a bit of a conversation about what we like to discuss on this podcast, which are issues, concerns, opportunities, exciting future, things that people may be worried about that all stem from us accelerating towards a digital society. Now at Atos, we are you know, a, a big global technology business that's helping develop, design, build the systems that people use. But we think we also bear a responsibility to help people feel comfortable about the change that's coming uh, and maybe even understand a bit more about it. So what we want to do is have conversations with people who are slightly outside of the pure technology world, in the world of academia, politics, media, even other markets, businesses, and get their perspective on what's happening and how they feel uh, we should try to have those conversations. So let, let me kick off by start, starting with a, the very first question, which is the current government have been talking about a digital strategy for quite a while. Now, let's be clear, they, they've had a few challenges at the moment. We've, we've got the global pandemic going on. Um, this government has had to really put almost all its focus and quite rightly so in terms of how it manages that. But there is still an extensive amount of work going on in Whitehall around how technology will play a part in public services and the future of it. And if anything, this pandemic has accelerated that. What, what's your thoughts on that strategy uh, and what you think might actually need to be at the heart of it uh, as they develop it? I think the key word is the one you've just used, accelerated. You know, loads of technology companies or, or technology services will have seen over the course of the pandemic, basically 10 years worth of adoption in some places in, in 10 short weeks. Huge numbers of people who felt there were enormous barriers to transforming their service to get it online discovered that actually when you had to, it wasn't that hard and it worked better than they'd expected. And then on the consumer side or the service user side, we've seen millions of people who thought 
online shopping was a bit rotten or a bit dangerous or talking to their GP online would be impersonal and uncomfortable. Actually, they tried it out and they went, actually, hang on, this is better. That's not a universal experience. It doesn't mean that digital solves all problems or that everybody's just going to be online from now forever. But it does mean that we've seen this really sharp acceleration. And because it was unpredicted and unpredictable in its shape, uh, in the ways it affects people's lives, it makes it much, much harder to think about strategy in the way that you've described. You know, actually, if the government had written a digital strategy in January, it would be completely wrong by now. Uh, and that's why one of the things we've been doing at Demos is, is a big kind of year long program called Renew Normal, trying to identify the ways in which this pandemic has shifted the landscape of experience, of expectation um, and, and people's kind of views about the future so that we can actually redesign our strategies to understand what are the new problems. One of my fears is that too much uh, political commentary on left and right is a kind of about trying to just get back to how things were, that we need to sort of patch up the old high streets that we had because people like them, oh, we don't want change, uh, what should we do about the shops? Or equally that, um, that public services are just, uh, online is impersonal and it me leaves behind some old people, some digitally disenfranchised people. So therefore, let's just get back. And our reality is you, you can't put this genie back in the bottle. It is way too big. And so what you need to do instead is adapt and build a strategy that identifies, maps out what the problems of the future will be and tries to solve those. For example, an obvious one is just the simple basics of digital inclusion. You know, loads of people have struggled with homeschooling, not because they didn't have the devices, because between an iPad and a, a laptop or a, you know, a fire tablet or whatever they did, it's that they didn't have the bandwidth. And we did this big consultation on people's experience of online living. And we thought that, I don't know, perhaps we're stuck in the old, right? We thought that the big fears people will have or aggregations they would be have would be about misinformation. Actually, no, it was just, I really, really want the Wi-Fi to work. Um, and so that's a big issue for people, just the quality of their connections. And then, of course, for another group of people, simply being online at all is a huge barrier, especially older groups, people who are in rented accommodation, who are homeless. Getting that connection at all is challenging. And without public spaces like libraries, which have often been used in the past for digital inclusion strategies to bring people together for the connection itself or for training, how do you reach those people? So it seems to me that, that digital inclusion was always important and now it's urgent and I don't know about you but back in 2019 the general election when the Labour Party said that um, uh, broadband should be sort of free universal right I kind of rolled my eyes and said oh markets are good you're all mad um, and whilst I don't think their policy was quite the correct one that sense that connectivity is in fact an essential component of being able to participate in our civic life in our public services I, I i feel like you know the the landscape has changed and we actually need to think about universal inclusion perhaps not with that exact policy but absolutely moving towards universal inclusion no i think you, you raised some really good points there and i think actually the point that uh, connectivity uh, needs to be universally available and the quality of connectivity let's be honest <laughs> and actually from 2006 when we've been doing a series of digital vision papers where we've looked at different elements of technology and what what needs to happen in our very first paper which focused on london i actually wrote about the personal digital ecosystem which actually i've been talking about for a number of years the citizen digital ecosystem mm -hmm. now 
the reason we were talking about it is because I felt that for a while we as individuals or certain segments of society have developed a, a, a citizen digital ecosystem which consists of connectivity where we pay for our whether it be our 5G, our broadband, our Wi-Fi. We have our hardware, be that our laptops, our tablets, our mobile phones, and then we tap into our networks, and that, those are our social media networks, we're at Facebook, uh, Twitter, even our retail networks like Amazon. And you put those three elements together, and you've got your own citizen ecosystem. And what's been tried and really pushed and tested through this pandemic was a, well, how many people actually have a viable ecosystem that allows them to operate in a pure digital world when really push comes to shove? But then when it's fundamental, so if it comes down to the delivery of services such as education, health, engagement with the government, local services, can that ecosystem survive? And that it, it may have been fine up until a year ago to be used for people to sell us things and use our own systems to so that we could, you know, order food or get to sell retail or, you know, have great networks and social media platforms. But when it came to some really fundamental essential services, such as we're seeing now in education and health, does that individual ecosystem really stack up? And now I think we have a really good conversation that says, what is the role of the private sector in helping citizens have a strong enough individual ecosystem. But also, as you say, then where does the government play its part? Yes, Labour proposed uh, the need for universal broadband, but how does the government play a part in the delivery or the quality of the delivery of that system, if not provision of that system, maybe, is where I'd like to see it go. I think it's about the quality that gets provided uh, as much as the, uh, the actual provision itself. But you're right, yeah. you know, in terms of we need to look at this now again and the government's digital strategy i love the way you said if it had been written a year ago it'd been so out of date what have we found in our in our industry and i found it in actually over the last 20 25 years working with a lot of technologies that actually one of the reasons technology projects struggle is from the start to where they actually get to delivery so much moves so quickly you know, the requirements yeah. can change as you go along, which is exactly the same with the strategy as well, especially in a fast moving world we live in now. So so what do you think government can do to help itself not find itself be in that position where by the time it comes to some conclusions, by the time it's actually got a strategy or decided on something, the world hasn't yet moved on again? I think one of the things they need to do is more devolution and more decentralization um, because it permits experimentation it permits different strategies to be used in different areas because you know the reality is especially when it comes to digital inclusion for the you know the most alienated or disenfranchised groups we don't we don't know a lot about what works when it comes to the delivery and rollout of um of of connectivity or, or you know it much better to enable Manchester City Region and Sheffield City Region to try different approaches and then learn from each other, um, rather than assuming, as I think too often this government does, that you have to have a sort of perfect universal national strategy that that gets to everybody. Um, we saw with uh, Test and Trace, for example, that whilst there are enormous strengths to being able to set up certain things like an app at a national standard, actually lots of the the complex uh, 
calling people, engaging with people is better done by locally engaged public health officials. And I think for a lot of this, there needs to be an um, open-minded approach to the role that local and sub-national governments can play in, in delivery and in navigating complexity. But crucially, so that you can try different things. You know, it, companies are so much better at this, right? You, you have a pilot of something and you see if it works before you roll it out everywhere. In government, I think partly because of politics and the media, all of that, that always has to be this kind of, I've decided this is the answer for everybody, regardless of the testing or, or the evaluation. Much better, I think, to do it on a, on a devolved basis. I think, you know, the reality is that um, for a long time, we've talked about digital service innovation and seen the, the huge benefits particularly from the systems side, which is that, you know, just like a bank, it's way cheaper if people are doing self-serve on an app than uh, than calling you up or, you know, having to visit you in an office or on a high street. Um, but what, what makes public services different from private services is, and it's why this kind of personal ecosystem point that you make is, is so vital, is that in the end, lots of them at least have to be for everybody. And in fact, they don't even have to be for the average everybody. They have to be for groups that are really hard to reach. Benefit claimants, for example, are just more likely to be people who've just gone through a huge life change, such as a bereavement or a loss of their job or a loss of their partner. Uh, they're more likely to be suffering from mental health problems. So you can't just have a kind of self-serve system and not worry about it. You have to what you have to absolutely design for the extremes. Um, and that means that instead of just thinking about, OK, well, let's do digital inclusion that gets to the sort of the easy to reach 75%. We actually need to think about digital service design that can reach everybody. And what are the um, demand side interventions that we need to do in order to enable and encourage people to come into these systems? So you design the systems better to reach the extremes and you support people better as well to come into the system. It's particularly hard to do during COVID, obviously. But it seems to me that... Um, uh, if we're worrying about what we do with our high streets, in fact, a, a place where you can face-to-face -face interact with, with support and engagement to be able to be guided through things like public service interactions could be a really useful way for the state both to say to people about their local high streets, you matter, your high street matters, we care about you, but also to ensure that the, the benefits of a digital service actually reach everybody instead of us just kind of turning a blind eye to the risks that some people get left behind. Yeah, no, look, I think you're spot on again. Uh, and the question of digital inclusion in any way, shape and form as, as you sort of develop new systems. And I remember because I was involved in um, the delivery of the Oyster card in London, which now seems a very long time ago, but in fact, uh, well, we launched it in 2003, but many, many years in the making. I was I was like I was a massive evangelist. I was trying to tell all my friends like you've got to get one of these. And one of my friends like just bought one of the the annual season tickets. And she was really just a paper one. She was really embarrassed to tell me like I'm really sorry. It's just it was the gold ticket. But well, anyway, so that's what a psycho I was on your side. No, well it was great because actually you know we spent a year of running that platform uh, when it was fully working and operational um, just to see the need for cultural adoption and awareness, mm. because it was the first time that we'd moved as a society to e-money, to contactless yeah. technology. You know, it was a huge psychological shift of trust in a, in a system and an organisation, 
Transport for London, um, that said, okay, you're, you're not going to see what's going on and there's going to be data about you and so on and so on. So many things that, that came up there, but the, the point about inclusivity was that we also knew that this was going to head down a direction that less and less cash would be used on the mm. system. Now, eventually, you know, we're talking now almost 20 years later, we're just about to the point where it's a cashless system, but that's taken two decades to get there because you had to consider every element of society that needed and you know to be slowly taken on that journey now that has accelerated now we're in a very different world to where we were back then but still that that coaching of people the gradual trust building that's required the localization as you put it uh and all the actually ownership at a devolved level uh, i think can help a lot but then that actually plays into another question i had for you which was um the leveling up agenda which is also quite associated with how devolution in one way devolution seems to be superseded by leveling up uh, now is it similar is it the same and how do you think things are evolving around leveling up again considering we always have to put the the, the context that the pandemic has taken a lot of focus from certain things for the government but at the heart of the agenda is still how do we get things to other parts shared and ownership in our in our nation and for other people so for me you know the leveling up agenda is enormously welcome but what, what i think sometimes gets forgotten is that it was not for want of trying that previous governments didn't do so well on this and that the the gdp differential between north and south widened. I mean, you know, there is some analysis that suggests there's been a problem for, you know, 150 years. Certainly in my political lifetime, I, you know, I started out um, as a journalist, but writing about John Prescott and all of John Prescott's initiatives for regional development, regional development agencies, uh, you know, narrowing the gap between the North and the South. That was his core agenda. And then David Miliband uh, joined him in, in, in the, the sort of local government department and had his whole agenda of double devolution, pushing for more powers. Then the coalition government came in. I was involved in that. We had a regional growth fund to try and invest in private sector industries outside of um, outside of the southeast in order to grow those places. You then had the Northern Powerhouse, the Midlands Engine, all of these initiatives. So the, the key thing for me is is. Um, I guess there's sometimes this danger of like uh, oh, leveling up needs to happen because everyone forgot about the North. Actually, it's just it's really hard. And and there are legitimate reasons why often, uh, a, you know, a, the marginal pound gets invested in a transport system in the southeast instead of in the north is because in theory it will yield, um, you know, according to the Treasury's Green Book, it will yield more pounds of return on that investment. And then great, we can transfer that money to through the benefit system, sort of Gordon Brown recycling. You just sort of grow the city, take the money and give it to Paul. Uh, I, I'm smiling because I, I did help to make the case for Crossrail. So I, I had to spend a lot of time with the Treasury uh, mentioning about why the billions required for Crossrail would you know, provide the return of investment for the whole country, even though well, it was going to London. Thank you for doing it because you won me a lunch. I had a bet when I was a, a property journalist with my boss, a guy called James, and he said that Crossrail would never get built and I said it would. And so when they stuck the first spades in the ground, I got a free lunch, so thank you for that. Um, so th the question is, how do you shift things? And I think this government is doing some really good things like trying to alter that green book assessment so that the case for longer term investments in places which might not immediately see a return is is more perceived. Uh, you know, it's not in the it's not in the um, 
in the north, but I spend a lot of time arguing with the Treasury around um, uh, garden cities, uh, trying to make the case that actually Milton Keynes didn't return an investment really for sort of 20, 30 years, but actually it's one of the most successful places in the country. It's one of the happiest places in the country. More people commute in than commute out. And it's a fantastic success because the Treasury was able to take that long term view of actually growing a place that was fantastic and really worth living in. Um, and, and I think too often we've gone, oh, well, the North, it's just it's in decline. So let's just kind of let's just give up. And, you know, some economists take that view uh, or, or you either just make people move or you recycle funds and give them out in benefits. The reality is that unless you're at both an individual level and at a town or regional level, People want to be independent. They want to grow their own industries. They want to have. They also want their own public services. They want their own magistrates' court and their own um, their own police station. They want to feel a sense of of civic pride. And you know, handouts, whether they are individual benefits uh, or um, or kind of government transfers, uh, you know, to to your local government area, they're an essential part of a society. But they don't confer that sense of dignity, autonomy and independence. Devolution is important for a procedural reason. You could, in theory, right, you could just invest £100 billion tomorrow in the northern infrastructure. But unless you do devolution alongside and allow people to be empowered about choosing what they want and what their pathway for growth is, I think you end up with just a sort of a political backlash. You know, what I grew up in Wales, um, lots and lots of European money was spent on uh, infrastructure investment and actually when you do if you do focus groups with people or just thinking about my neighbors they they're like yeah but you didn't ask us what we wanted and actually charging and building stuff is a really good recipe for annoying people if you don't allow them to be the masters of their own destiny to choose they might choose what the treasury thinks is marginally the wrong thing but it doesn't matter actually because agency and empowerment is what drives in my view on, on innovation entrepreneurship and that crucial sense of, of civic pride, which is so important to people's well-being. No, it's, it's a great point because the point about whether people feel they own something or whether it's being done to them, I mm -hmm. feel is fundamental in this in this era of technology as well. <clears throat> because with technology, it, it does feel like it's moving at such a pace. It's, it's hard for any of us to keep up. And therefore, if everything changes so rapidly and whether it be your data, the systems, the way you've got to do things keeps moving and changing. You feel no sense of influence, of involvement in shaping. Then yes, how do you feel that this is something for you and you can feel that you're part of this world around you, whether it be the physical world of infrastructure or whether it be the digital world of services that are being developed. And, and that's why, you know, we're so focused on having this conversation around digital society because it's something that's going to be vested for everybody. But also, uh, I loved your your historical uh, line of the initiatives taken from Prescott onwards. It feels it's something to do with deputy prime ministers because I remember a certain Lord Heseltine as well. You know, Liverpool, the, the case for regeneration there, but also uh, out in Canary Wharf and Docklands and everything else. It, but it is the combination of, as you quite rightly point out, economic initiative with political will. Now, I think previously there hasn't been the localised, devolved will as much as there could be. Um, but hopefully that can help, uh, whether it's Northern Powerhouse or whether it's a Midlands engine. Uh, but I think you do need the, the physical change with the political change to get where we're going and for communities to feel that ownership. But the pandemic maybe has, has highlighted that as well, where we've had to see 
you know, whether it's been whack-a-mole strategy or, or whatever else it may be, this pandemic is not a universal um, infliction. It changes and evolves depending on where it is, depending on circumstances, infection rates and everything else. So yet again, that has shown the need for localised management, uh, localised decision-making, uh, localised um, uh, responsibility for people. So yeah, I think, you know, let's hope that that plays a part in the, the continuing focus on the levelling up agenda. But maybe now moving on to uh, something slightly different but associated with information, disinformation. And, and as we now move into a post-Trump era where uh, although the, the 45th president ha has left the White House, I fear the term fake news will, will still be around for uh, many years to come. Uh, one of the legacies of uh, uh, probably his term in office, but something that was always there, shall we say, but is proliferated by uh, social media, by digital channels. Um, and, and your thoughts on how the government, but also industry and businesses, can play their part around dealing with and helping to address some of the challenges around disinformation and yes, fake news. So we've done a, a huge amount of work at Demos exploring the, I guess, the, the, the misinformation and disinformation ecosystem. And I think it's really important to recognise there's kind of three distinct groups of actors here. The first is uh, political activists who may be conspiracist theory types, or they may just be uh, to the more extreme of um, of different, of much more mainstream politics, uh, and, and they have, you know, reason and right to criticise what may be inaccurate or mainstream sources of media, uh, but they're doing it for themselves because it matters to them, and that's an agenda that that motivates them, rightly or wrongly. There's then um, a group of people, many of whom are concentrated in uh, Eastern Europe, kind of former uh, Eastern Bloc countries where economic opportunities are pretty minimal. And, you know, you may have the opportunity to basically be a cam girl or to be an internet entrepreneur, which means producing content, which you're gonna kind of propagate through the internet. And for those people, the content doesn't matter. It's just got to be clickable. And that's why it might be dodgy diet pills, or it might be pizza conspiracy stuff to, to support QAnon. The reality is often driven by algorithms. They just produce more and more content that's the most clickable because that's how they generate their revenues. And then the third group are state actors who are deliberately um, uh, fermenting and supporting both of those groups. Uh, and we've seen it particularly, we've done lots of work particularly analysing behaviour of uh, Russian uh, networks of Twitter bots that were deleted by Twitter. And it's clear that the tactics there are to um, amplify divisive uh, information and insights. And I think it's really important that we think about the complexity of this, partly because that fake news is often, it's not that simple even. It's not just about lies. I, I'm like, I'm certain that the stuff about like pizza pedophile networks, that's just a lie. But an example of, of stuff that is propagated by particularly state actors is something, there was a picture of a, a Muslim woman um, crossing the bridge after the attack in Westminster, and she was on her phone. It is a true picture of a woman who genuinely was on her phone walking past people in the street. Now, it's also true that that's after she had stopped to offer help 
seen if she could help and then done a perfectly normal thing, which is call her mum and tell her she was safe. But it's still it's a it's a real picture. And so it's not is it fake news or is it a real? The problem is that it's used to um, amplify this sense that Muslims aren't on our side. They're bad guys. Look, here's proof that a Muslim doesn't care about terrorism. It's a grotesque distortion. And yet what's almost what's most troubling about it is that there is this sort of kernel of truth of a genuine photograph at its core. And so it's that manipulation of reality and 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 fakery um, that, that causes, I think, so much harm. And the tactic is very explicitly explicit is probably one word very clearly because they don't talk about their tactics. Right. But the tactic is very clearly to promote division and dissension because unified countries <coughs> in the West and unified West is a threat to uh, Russia. And it, disunity is precisely what they want. Um, and I think we need to tackle all three of those different strands in really quite different ways. Um, because when it comes to individual actors, actually the question of just simple enforcement of the uh, the terms and conditions of these sites, which are honestly more honoured in the breach than the observance at the moment, there is just not enough money going into human moderators. They were put on furlough because of the, during the pandemic. That's just sort of madness. Um, and I, I, Facebook, Google, they say that, oh, we're, we're spending as much as we can. No, you're not. You're still making billions and billions of pounds of profit. It's just we just need more moderation, including human moderation. When it comes to Eastern Europe, frankly, it's about a better, more exciting economic opportunity, just like drug strategies in Afghanistan are about providing good routes to market for healthy crops, because otherwise you can't deter people. You have to find other economic opportunities. Yeah. And when and, it comes to... Sorry, and then we just need a more concerted international multilateral approach to how we tackle the Russian state threats more comprehensively. Yeah, and, and, and your point about more moderation, I, I completely agree, and th there is more of an ask that needs to be made and more done around it. But what about also, uh, of which there is, I think, good work now going on in, in education systems about people being able to, and especially young people, being able to perceive what they're seeing and the differences you quite rightly put there between what's the, the the sort of smidgen of truth that the lie and the misinformation is being built around and our ability to uh, acknowledge and understand that. Um, what more do you think could be done around that? I think education is important and it does seem that young people, digital natives, are much more adept at navigating this complexity than older people who are more likely to be sharing stuff because they grew up in a society where you know media brands they just assumed they were true uh, and so the the idea that stuff might be made up is it, it, it so it, it's the of course the question is how do you how do you reach older groups through educational interventions you've worked in public policy right endlessly people sort of lazy policy making is we should put it on the curriculum in schools you think, well, OK, even if that works, it's still going to take 70 years for the whole population to have learned it at school. So what are we going to do for older groups? And, you know, I think the platforms themselves can do more on that, but also uh, so can government as part of kind of di digital inclusion. But I think even then, the danger is what you end up with, with, say, deep fakes, is a sense that you can't believe anything. And yes, young people, digital natives may be more comfortable with this idea that they just live in a, a sea of impossible to understand information. But from a kind of simple cognitive bandwidth 
you, you know, you just can't spend your entire day looking at every advert, every lick you think and thinking, I'm going to read the Fact Check UK information on that. I'm going to use my critical analysis skills. Like we've got lives to lead. And, and so I think we also need to think about what are the trusted sources of information that aren't personalised, that are just the same for everyone. And, you know, we are so lucky in the UK to have the BBC. The world is lucky actually to have Wikipedia, which is this extraordinary ecosystem, plenty of faults, but where it's not personalised. It's a, it's a source of knowledge that everybody can reach. And, and we need to think about building up those institutional sources of knowledge so that you have a port, right, a port in the storm of misinformation where you probably have to assume most things are lies. Because I, I don't think we can live like that for long. No, I think you're right. And I think, you know, the, the need and the continuity of having trusted journalism is more mm. essential than ever. Uh, and those bastions of journalism, whether it be, uh, you know, the broadsheets, the big newspapers, the big TV networks, and yes, you know, the BBC uh, and others, uh, do have a big role to play and continue to play for us to feel that we can get a source of information that we do trust. But trust is what it does come down to. And, you know, we as a business do do understand that. Obviously, we, we work with a number of broadcasters, including BBC, but also we are the number one business in, in Europe to help uh, deliver cybersecurity, um, number three in the world. We protect things like the Olympic Games. We see, actually, those actors that you were mentioning um, in action and are having to combat them uh, quite quite daily, if not by every second, to ensure safety and security. And uh, and we see as a fundamental issue going forward, not just the work we're doing, but people broadening their awareness of these actors. And I think what you've said there, you know, is something that if people can get that understanding of where these things are coming from and the motivation behind them, they don't have to have the critical analysis of every single thing they're seeing, but just that awareness of, oh, it could be coming from any one of these three things. Let me just bear that in mind. That might go a long way in, in helping people. And I'll give an example now, let's be honest, um, the vaccine for mm. COVID uh, and, you know, the misinformation and the positioning around that and, you know, people being told that potentially there's this meat extract or whatever it might be in the All kinds of uh, inaccurate nonsense um, that is trying to undermine people's confidence in something. Uh, and as you currently said, there are people out there who are trying to provide, uh, to, to actually dis disunity, disinformation, confusion and chaos uh, for their own broader uh, macro uh, objectives. But we will be confident as a society. We hope that uh, the more conversations like these that we have with people like yourself, uh, who, who could help us actually share and spread some of that conversation and understanding. And I think there's a lot of work, a lot of work for us all to do, not just in the development of new services, but I'd like to think in the explanation, in the conversation, in the sharing, in the bringing people together, because that's truly what society is. But when we're moving into this era, and I do say the digital society, I think the more we can do and have that conversation that gives people a bit more insight through trusted voices, I'd like to say like yourself, uh, hopefully that plays a small part in getting us going in the right direction. Polly McKenzie, it's been really delightful, informative uh, and engaging to have you on our Digital Society podcast. Thank you very, very much for sparing the time. Um, and uh, we're going to have more guests we hope like yourself on in the weeks and months ahead so if you would like to hear more from the atos digital society podcast 
please do tune in and watch out. Polly, I would like to say thank you too. Is there anything you'd like to add before we uh, before we close this this edition? No, uh, thanks. It's really great. I think the most important thing for us to do is to think about if we're going to have a more digital society, how do you make that an opportunity, the change to make things better and to solve the problems that were wrong with the society we had before? And it's great to see Atos, you know, being part of that conversation. To learn more about the podcast or suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please contact us at digitalsociety at atos.net or visit the Atos website.